Hey, Ethan, um, what do you think of Boca and the the uh, bringing it into your photos, uh, shooting for Boca? Um, and uh, what type of Boca do you like? Do you like bubbly Boca or smooth Boca or or lumpy <laughs> Boca or Boca that has, you know, like cheese in it? Um, what's your Boca? I like taro Boca tea with um, the, the Boca balls in it. Okay, uh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so I used to be really into this look here and there. Um, I still am. I think it's uh, a look that works way better when you have uh, an SLR. I feel like I can focus much more precisely and see what is dropped out of focus. Um, it's one of the things that I really love about shooting uh, 8x10s. Um, one of my favorite lenses of all time is the Kodak uh, 12 inch graphic ektar or commercial ektar, I forget which one. Um, there's only one of them, but uh, just the, the way it sort of renders all of the, the tones and um, uh, not, it, it's almost like a, like a glow, which is not specifically it's, it's bokeh, but um, yeah, things fall off really quickly. Um, I think the first time I, I realized I had like a photographic style might have been way back in college, which is maybe not my style now. But, you know, it just came from the tools that I happened to have, which was a uh, N8008 and a 35 millimeter F2. And I would just shoot that thing wide open for portraits all the time. And, you know, it could nail focus even with 80s autofocus um, really quickly. And so I shot a lot of portraits of people with uh, really, you know, blown out. Uh, blurry backgrounds and I love that but these days I've been shooting a bunch of street photography when I can and I just much prefer to set the thing at uh, f16 which is like in focus from you know five feet to infinity uh Mm -hmm. set the meter readings and then like look for like a scene that's multi-level on the street so um the good example of it recently, which was a photo I botched, but a scene that I really liked was uh, I was standing around a corner in Montreal, kind of like watching around the corner where people couldn't see me. And um, there's like a gaggle of people on the street corner talking. And then this girl rolls up on her bike to the stop sign. And then like a Chevy Suburban rolls up right behind her, you know, waiting at the stop. And there's two dudes, each with their heads out, you know, the front and the back window, like staring at her butt. And uh, like, I, I missed that shot, but that, that's the sort of thing that I'm always looking for is like a couple different levels, um, you know, physically okay. to back. And uh, yeah, so no, no more bokeh for me, but it's, it's really nice in portraiture. I don't know. I'm rambling about this. What, what do you guys think about it? Now? Yeah. Nick, what, what do you, uh, what do you think about bokeh? Uh, well, there are circumstances where, you need to be wide open or you want to isolate a subject that's close to the camera where it's maybe difficult or impractical to get a lot of depth of field. I generally don't seek bokeh out, but when there's a circumstance that demands uh, a narrow depth of field, then it's nice if if it isn't ugly. (laughs) And I have noticed over time, I've noticed over time that it's not just lenses. Uh, There are lenses that look better and lenses that look worse. But for many, many circumstances, it's a proportion between the the distance between the subject and the camera related to the distance between the camera and the background. And Uh 
and sometimes a, a lens that looks really great most of the time will will produce some really horrible looking bokeh if that if that uh proportion is off and you know that that's a common sure. problem that i've found it, that can matter more than anything else um, hey, hey Nick, let okay. me ask you a question because i i'm not um i don't i don't know that i really get it right so um i have this lens it's like the the bokeh king right it's the 35 f2 like a lens which i just always use at f16 because that's how i use that lens i love mm -hmm. it but what do you mean by bad bokeh do you mean like you know showing like the shape of the aperture blades or um... no that doesn't bother me what what i'm talking about is the actual blurriness um sometimes there's the, the thing that I notice is uh, too much contrast in the in the out of focus areas, so that okay. they so that they become like these distracting hieroglyphs in the background. That it, 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 I think that's yeah, a big no, part exactly of it. Yeah, and what you what I generally prefer is less contrast in the out of focus areas, so that they're smooth and watery and lovely to see. But when when you get Kind of a like bunch of jag, jagged eyebrows glaring at you out of the bushes because there's too much contrast in that out of focus area. Then that becomes very distracting, and it's exactly the opposite of the the subject isolation idea. And and you just want to look at the ugly background and instead of the subject. <laughs> right. I feel right. like the the Nikkor that I use does that sometimes, uh, but the Kodak Ektar almost never does. But then again. I'm shooting only really one type of thing with the Ektar on 8x10, so everything is really nice and smooth, like a painted backdrop or something. Yeah, and there's so many, there's a lot of variables here, so it's hard to generalize, but... Yeah, yeah I agree with that. Yeah. Um, one of the things uh, that I was thinking about a lot lately, I've been thinking about the Petzibol Swirly Bokeh. Uh, I've been thinking about the Bubbly Bokeh. I, I bought a Canon... Um, SLR lens. It was in the FL line. Um, uh, it's a 35, and I don't know whether it's a 2.8 or, or or what it is. But it, it, if um, if you um, uh, defocus it and have any point of light, it's going to bubble up like you wouldn't believe. Um, and I really like that. I re really really like that. But well, then you the, would love homemade movies circa 2009 to 2012 on the 5D well, Mark II. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, well, actually, leading into that, um, the movie, uh, a, a movie is really what struck me on this. Uh, were either of you Downton Abbey fans when that show was running on PBS? Well, I never actually watched watched it, so no. Okay. So, uh, Ethan, did you watch it at all? Uh-uh. Okay, I, I watched it. You know, it's a it's a soap opera. You get involved with the characters and and you get involved with the storylines and you want it to turn out for the best and all that type of stuff. Uh, well, they have the the movie uh, has come out. They've they've done a movie for it. And one of the things that I'm always worried about with movies that are made from television shows is uh, that often you'll get you know like an episode you know, a, a, a 50 minute episode jammed into two and a half hours. You know, they, they just, the, the, the storylines don't quite hold up. You know, they just write another episode instead of uh, really trying to figure out what a movie pacing should be. Um, or it could, you know, it, it could also be, you know, like the movie pacing that I'm expecting from the television show 
Or, is or even worse, is they would have like poor TV bokeh on a film. Well, um, this is this is um, uh, I, I think they shot this um, movie um, and it was particularly noticeable outdoors. I think they shot it with like a five stop um, neutral density filter because everything, everything is out of focus in the backgrounds. And unfortunately, it's all bubbly. It's or it's not necessarily bubbly, but it's very edgy as opposed to smooth. Mm-hmm. And um, I found myself, you know, I mean, part of the deal is that I see it because I, you know, Boca is a word that I know and I look for it, you know. Um, and, um, you know, as a photographer, sometimes I want it, sometimes I don't. And all throughout this movie in all the inappropriate places, they had this really strong Boca. And one of, uh, I think that there actually might have been a practical reason for that. Um, sure. There were, there was at least one scene that I could identify where half of it was shot outdoors and half of it was shot in a soundstage. So if you have the background blurry, you don't, you know, you don't get that ripply sounds, you know, uh, green screen edge. Um, well, and the but, other thing is they're doing a period piece and they want to throw the gum wrappers and stuff out of focus. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, Less yeah, money yeah, on yeah. set detail. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you know, that that's that's a legitimate reason. I'll buy that. But I really wish they would have used a different lens because or a different primary lens because the bokeh was really it had edges so that there were all these little edges in the background that really kind of were driving me nuts. Um, and it really, uh, to a certain extent, that's what I found myself looking at for a lot of the movie. Um, although uh, I'll also give a little review. I'm not telling people not to go to it because I actually thought it was worth my money, uh, which is pretty high praise for me for a movie. Cause usually when I go to a movie, it's like, ah, eh, that wasn't worth the money to go see the movie in the theater. Um, so anyway, uh, it was it was just a choice. Now, my other favorite time of uh, video Boca is um, if you ever watch the Hallmark Channel during the holidays, they have the cheesiest holiday stories. And at some point, somebody's going to be outside and there could be Christmas lights strung somewhere. So there's Boca and almost always, for some reason, on the Hallmark, it's pentagram Boca. You know, it's like they couldn't even get around uh around aperture lens for the that. sign of the devil. It is. It is. <laughs> it's, it's the well, Santa Claus, what's the difference, right? <laughs> okay. So, anyway, so that was um, that actually reminds me of something that happened recently. Um a friend of mine is like a fancy filmmaker now and he was speaking on some panel and put up um this little bit of info uh about what lenses the winning films from this year's sunglass or sunglass uh, sundance film festival was were shot on and so it was like a you know a bar graph of what percentage of those movies were shot with coke optics or zeiss optics or fuji optics and it's interesting because i was thinking like i don't know my, my buddy carries like a briefcase of like maybe 60 grand worth of lenses sometimes uh, to put on movie uh-huh. cameras. Right. Um, and as, at a certain point, I just think like, uh, <laughs> what is it? They're, they're not any sharper. Right. But also 
the difference between them is clearly at that level, not sharpness. Uh, it is just kind of what what all of the not sharp things look like, right? Yeah, and probably right. probably handling too, because yeah. it it's a lot more critical in in uh, moving pictures that everything sure. be easy to do. Oh man, here is a not homemade camera example that I really love. So um, I was back in New York recently, and my buddy was shooting this other film on film, um, and I you know went to the set one day to sort of just geek out and watch. And they had I don't know, it must have been like an eighty pound Ari with. Uh, mm. Like, so it's, it's shooting film, right, in magazines. There was a girl there just loading magazines all day. That was her job, arms in a, you know, dark tent, unloading the shot magazines, loading the new ones. And, like... Wow, that's a crucial they, job. <laughs> they've got a lipstick camera in the eyepiece. They've got, like, 20 uh, iPads around, so, like, all of the different, you know, uh, producers or, or whoever can see what's being shot through the eyepiece, which is also crazy. And then they have like one person to hold and point the camera. And then another person who electronically through this lipstick cam is changing the focus. And I think she can control the zoom, but maybe it was the, I, I forget which one, I mean, you know, it was like the most ridiculous cobbled together, you know, I don't know how much money that that sort of camera was, but it took, four or five people to operate the thing that's before sound it was it was amazing i would love to have a uh, team like that to help me take a picture yeah they don't I, put that they don't put that many monkeys in the rocket ships even yeah, <laughs> yeah. uh what, what i find uh very interesting uh, about that is the um they're shooting on film but they still have the need to see the immediate every you know the director has the need to see through that view p viewfinder um and as opposed to in the past um you would trust the trust the, the cinematographer well uh, so would, my know. buddy was the cinematographer sometimes he was not even even holding the camera he was just standing there you know, whispering instructions into the cam two camera operators' ears, uh, sure. holding an iPad. It was something. Sure. Um, sure. And I, you it, know, I, yeah. I think we've had Go that ahead. hybrid technology for a long time, right? Because we've had video for a really long time, and um, it hasn't been until recently, say 2009 or whatever, that it started catching up to film. Um, and so, I think when you're spending like Steven Spielberg type of money, you're always uh, shooting, I, I guess those were, you know, the first hybrid uh, analog digital cameras. Maybe I'm wrong, but some of the first. Yeah. You know, it's okay. funny because I've actually thought about pushing that more with our still homemade still cameras. Uh, I use I shoot digital and analog side by side a lot, and it's often really practical to uh -huh. shoot with, shoot with a digital camera and then just transfer settings okay, to maybe. an analog camera. Uh -huh. Maybe you're not on the YouTube world as much as I am, but um, have you seen these people take uh, it's it's usually they take like a Leica and they mount a GoPro in the hot shoot flash. And they're okay, like, here's so the video of me shooting street photography. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's it's super good. That's one version I've all, I've, I've thought about oh, using okay. a really small mirrorless camera as an electronic viewfinder for a big like, say, a large format camera in a similar way. It's real easy to to turn the thing into a viewfinder with a built-in light meter and everything else. 
even a rangefinder. You know, the the Fujis I use have a very accurate rangefinder. You can just read off the right mm-hmm. through the eyepiece. So, you know, that that's actually quite practical. And I've I've thought about and I've mentioned this before on the podcast about essentially creating a twin lens reflex version of that with digital uh-huh. on top and analog underneath and tying it all together. It'd be it'd be actually for some things it would be quite practical, especially like very low light, you know, or uh-huh. situations where you, you can't you know, use the analog equipment as, you know, as easily. I bet that you could even do it with like a, you know, for them, they were hugely expensive, whereas you could probably build them for next to nothing. Now, uh, in the darkroom, people would have video analyzers where you have like, you know, a color calibrated TV, basically, that's connected to a little camera that looks at the easel. And then you have some sort of color translation or transformation of the colors into, you know, to match the paper and uh, development chemistry. Um, And then you could tweak and color correct and change the exposure and watch it on a video screen. Um, Kind of like people making prints on a Noritsu or, you know, one of those mini labs. Yeah, and the Fujis essentially do that with their film simulations. They have a, a whole bunch of parameters you can control mm-hmm. in, in camera live, um, you know, contrast and sharpness, the whole thing. I mean, pretty much most of what you do in a computer, you you can have the camera doing live now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, same idea, really. I don't care okay. so much about that. It's just uh, it would be interesting in certain situations uh, where it's very hard to use the old equipment the way it's designed so uh what do you guys say we start the homemade camera podcast sure i kind of want to talk about focus some more but okay Okay, so for those of you that have ordered the printed zine, I'm going to just give a quick update. Um, We ordered the zines a bunch of days ago. Um, I am having them shipped to Graham because I'm headed to Spain in a couple of days. Um, I also have to ship Graham and Nick some personal projects, but also um, there's a couple little doodads going out with some of the the zines that Graham will send out, so he will bag those i think this is the first Mm -hmm. time i'm telling him about this Um, yes i think it is but (laughs) yeah yeah so uh timeline wise we said we would get them out on october 7th um uh, i think we're going to miss that by a few days apologies uh they should get to Graham on the 11th and maybe go out in a day or two um there's not too many and i will auto generate the labels for Graham to print Um, I hope everybody likes theirs. I'm really excited about getting mine. Um, There's, we over-ordered maybe five or 10 copies. So there's a few still available on the website um, that you can buy. Um, Yeah, okay. Uh, That's pretty much the zine update. Thanks everybody who bought one or or took a look at the PDF on the internet. It's been real fun watching people's reactions to that all over the world. And uh, just a little bit to manage people's expectations, we did have to go, um, uh, the the PDF version is a single page, you know, that fills your screen, uh, and we did have to go to a, a page-based layout. So 
there's some slight differences in it. Um, it <laughs> so comes for you in very at, finicky graphic designers out there. Yeah, it comes <laughs> it comes in at 72 pages. Just so you guys know what you're getting, it's a 72 page zine, which is hella big. Uh, but um, <laughs> it's great. I, I think. Yeah. Um, I I'm waiting to see you know what the what the print quality and everything is, but um, I, I'm really excited about it. I've had a bunch of, you know, online printed things with never really any problems. Um, but yeah, it made me excited that maybe we could do more. I noticed Graham yeah. does not like this, but I do like this is that if we go just a little bit smaller in the future, we can print <laughs> zine for about half the price, which I think it was like a little ridiculous um, by the time you pay for shipping and, and the zine itself, like to ship it to Europe is, you know, is 25 bucks. And a bunch of people bought them and thank you very much. But um, I think if we can half one of those costs and maybe find somebody in Europe to um, ship a few out like Graham will do in the future, they yeah. will be you know, a little bit more reasonable. Would it be possible to have more than one printer so that a, a different or a different company is sure. printing and distributing. Sure. Well, you know. actually, this company that we're using has a European. I think there's um, it has an Irish uh, printing. Hey, um, there you go. Uh, the problem is having somebody then uh, mail them out. So right. you have to have a gram when you go away to Spain. Or I could fly to Spain and meet them and ship them out. <laughs> right. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> So, okay, um, Nick, you wanted to talk about um, field of view and perspective and a whole bunch of stuff. And um, and I want to follow along because I'm not really uh, there. There appears to be a a, a little bit of a kerfuffle. Um, and sure. I and I don't understand what it is that people don't understand. So I, I want to follow along. So, okay. Uh, I, I don't think ahead. it's so much a problem of people understanding the topic. I think the problem is that the way the English language has been used to talk about the ideas around perspective, distortion, uh, field of view, all of these things, the, there's, there's, there's some language which is very confusing because the same terms are used to mean very different things from a physics point of view. The, the uh, sort of descriptive words that are used uh, are very contradictory. So the first thing is to get the terms uh, clear because they have to be used in a narrow sense when we talk about optics and perspective and all of that. And and they aren't. People use them in much broader senses, and it, it makes it almost impossible to talk about the subject. So I'm going to start by saying how we have to think of uh, this idea in a narrow sense. So the term perspective, for instance, refers only to the geometry of point of view. It has nothing whatsoever to do with optics, focal length, or any of that. And And this is really important, because if you don't break those two topics into two separate uh, terms, then we'll always be confusing each other with when we talk about this. So perspective is if you picture uh, picture a big three-dimensional space and a little person moving around in that space, looking around them, wherever you stop, there are uh, an infinite number of lines radiating out from where your eyes are to the rest of the world. That's the geometry of perspective, and it has nothing to do 
with the lens you're using or anything else. It's just there's a point of view and there's an infinite uh, bunch of rays leading out in all directions. And the so, angle and relationship of those rays are what we mean when we say perspective. Well, let me ask a question at this point. So uh, what you're saying is perspective is the difference between say there is a plug on the wall and there's a bench in front of that plug and if i'm standing at a position where if i rock my head back and forth i can see the plug or the plug goes away that's what you're talking about it's about exactly. that one it's, specific place in space right. versus the other specific places in right space. and when you rock right? your head back okay. and when you rock your head back and forth you're changing the point of view okay because your eyes aren't staying in one place so you're comparing two different points of view and and that's something that you'll see animals doing a lot um owls do it yeah. owls can't move their eyes so they move their whole head in in an effort to get what we do with our binocular uh, the way we use binocular vision so it's sure it it's a it's just point of view it doesn't matter what lens you're looking through it's the same and you can prove this um by comparing you know different focal length lenses and overlaying the pictures and it's it's yeah. possible to prove it but the main point is just to remember it's just point of view it's just those lines of sight from so let's from go where you are let's and, go back and, to the plug the plug and the and the bench mm -hmm. it doesn't matter whether you have a 28 or a 135 you can either see the plug or you can't see the plug right ex exactly it's okay. just it's just lines of sight from a point of view that's what perspective is okay so we get that over and, and then the thing that makes it hard to wrap our heads around this is that there are differences between different lenses but the differences don't have to do with perspective they have to do with our own brains so we have what i've heard a lot of different numbers but i kind of use uh, 42 or 43 millimeter as being the equivalent uh focal length of our own eyes um it probably varies a little and you know it's confusing as well because the, our, the human field of view is quite different. There are a lot of you know details, but the main thing to remember is that we only can see the world with a 42 millimeter equivalent focal length. That's the only way we can see the world. So if you're standing in a particular place, that field of view will give, that focal length will give a certain kind of uh field of view okay so if i'm standing really close to somebody yeah define field of view here because right. i think that that so if i'm standing really close to somebody i can see um my my point of view the perspective that i'm seeing will be just from that point of view uh, but with a certain eye lens the human eye lens i will only be able to see uh, a certain amount of the world okay but if i use a much wider lens if i'm looking through a single lens reflex camera or if i'm looking at the ground glass on the back of the camera with a very wide angle lens on it i will suddenly be seeing a bunch more of the world than i could with my normal eye that's the distortion the distortion has nothing to do with optics it has to do with the human brain having uh being forced to perceive something that we can't naturally perceive um, and, and the way that manifests itself, the reason people like to use long lenses for portraiture is that 
And people talk about this idea of compression, and that's also misleading. It's not something the lens is doing. It's something our brains are doing. <laughs> so, so what happens is if I'm looking at a human face from very, very close with my eye, all I'm going to see is their nose. But if I have a wide angle lens, I'm suddenly able to see their ears as well. And that point of view, it's impossible for us to see that perspective with our naked eye. And it makes those ears look like they're really big and they're sticking out. And that's nothing to do with the perspective, okay? It's just that we can't naturally perceive that with a 42 millimeter equivalent eye. The lens is showing us a view of the world that we can't normally see and that we perceive that as being distorted perspective, but it's really just a confusing point of view. I hope that's not too, it doesn't, it, you have to really kind of dig in and buy that because that's really how things are, but it doesn't, it's not how it feels, right? When we look at a picture, our eyes have never seen anything except 42 millimeter point of view for, you know, forever and ever. We're going to look at the picture and say, that's distorted. But in fact, it's not. It's just a point of view that we can't have without the optical assistance. If, if you can sort that out, it makes it easier to compare the actual real distortions that are caused by optics. And that's stuff like barrel distortion and pincushion distortion and, you know, the things that um, people spend a lot of money to, to get rid of in a lens um, and add extra elements to cure and that sort of thing. Um, and those are distortions caused by uh, limitations of the optical design you're using to look at the world through. Uh, and that's a whole other issue. So when people talk about perspective distortion, they're actually talking about the, the difficulty our brains have with looking through um, unusual focal lengths. Uh, okay. Anyway, I hope that's helpful. Yeah, uh, um, uh, that makes sense to me. Um, uh, uh, the way I would talk about the difference between a, uh, say, a 42 millimeter and a 28 millimeter would be um, because we can see just about 180 degrees normally with uh, with our eyes. If you have normal vision, you can see about 180 degrees. And I, um, I don't think I can, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you Are, put your hands out and wiggle your fingers, um, hang on a second. Let me take a picture of you with your hands out, wiggling your fingers. You can see. Oh, I you see know, what you mean. Your, 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 your far peripheral vision can tell there's something there vision. yeah right right, right. Our, our actual our actual uh, important vision is like less than a degree what we focus on is less than a degree um, sure but that's a technicality but, because what yeah. we what our brains assemble for us uh there's so there's several different a angles of view there's the, the what you described first 180 degrees is your full peripheral vision and then that one degree is just the area of acuteness that are Right. Uh, eyes feed to our brain but what we see is a concoction it's a compromise between those right. two and there's a field right. of view in that which is somewhere in between the two that's sort of the bubble of reasonably clear okay. perception that we're waving around that's probably around 50 i don't right. know what is it 50 degrees 60 degrees something like that so uh, okay. i okay. Um, i have been thinking about this a lot Okay, let me, let me just do one thing before you come in, Ethan, and yeah, yeah, just yeah. continue on with what I was going to do. Is but if you put a uh, a piece of 
foam core with a rectangular image cut out of it that approximates what your lens will see. As you bring it closer to yourself, as you, uh, I guess, uh, okay, so So as you bring it closer to your eyes, are you getting, are you, you're not changing that 42 millimeter field of view. No, you're just We're just getting, we're just cropping. Right. Um, But that doesn't, that, that doesn't help us with this uh, concept at all, I'm guessing. Um, well, it, it, because, will, it will because we're going to take all of this and turn it around backwards when we start talking about the insides of a large format camera system. And then okay. it will be, then that, that's where that will become significant. Okay, and we're going to do that later in this episode. So, right. okay, so Ethan, go ahead. Oh, uh, you know, maybe this is a whole different show. And this is kind of how we all became friends originally is um, arguing over over like the field of view of the human eye. And I wonder if like, um, I see a little bit like wider than Nick does. Right. Because like I'm sitting here at my kitchen table, listening to you guys talk and, you know, without moving my head or changing my focus, I can see, you know, from, from the edge of my refrigerator to the edge of the outer edge of the baker's rack. Now you guys can't see my kitchen, but I'd say that's like, I don't know, 18 millimeters. And what's what's clear is maybe 35 to 28. I mean, it's it's pretty wide. Yeah, you're talking, you're using, you're, you, this is going to be confusing. You're using focal length equivalent. So talk about yeah, angles yeah, yeah. of view. Okay, versus, okay. Yeah. So I don't have a protractor, but like one eye, right? Like I can focus on the image from one eye over the other. And it's maybe, I don't know, 120 degrees just uh, judging with my arms i'm like uh conducting airline traffic here okay so what you're, what you're describing this is important it's not what your eyes are doing it's what your brain is doing your visual cortex it and this is something that you can adjust so if you start thinking about your peripheral vision your brain is going to spend more time filling in the details on the sure. periphery and it's going to give you a wider field of view so what we see in our heads is not what our eyes see we see a reconstruction based on a lot of experience and feedback that our eyes are darting around and filling in. So if you're focusing on a, on a single thing, like if you're homing in on uh-huh. some, you know, an attractive subject, for instance, you're going to see a much, the, the peripheral vision is just going to be a blur. It's, it's going to go, go yeah. all bokeh on you. In my mind. But that's actually happening in your brain rather than, right. it's, it's, it's what your attention is on essentially. And I've I've often felt like so if you're just walking down the street thinking to yourself, you tend to have a broader kind of more even amount of inattention going in all directions. And I think of that as like the, 30, out. the 35 millimeter lens equivalent, you know, that the, the field shooter kind of thing. And then if you're if you're focused on, you know, I don't know, some attractive subject that you that's sucking in all your attention, you know, all of a sudden it's like you zooming out or zooming in with a longer lens. And that that's just a that's a way that lenses can play to how our attention changes. And I think that's a useful tool when you're taking pictures that, you know, obviously people use longer lenses when they want to focus your attention on something. But I think that has an analogous uh, experience in the way our brains interpret the world too. 
I feel like that's a real artist level of self-awareness that you need for like perspective drawings and, and things like that, that I maybe don't have. Dude, it's nothing to do with well. perspective. Once again, it's <laughs> nothing to do with perspective. No, 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 but I'm just saying um, like like observational level, right? Right. That you need that sort of thing. I, I, I cannot draw very well. <laughs> Drawing's, drawing is the single most useful uh thing to do if, if you want to make anything in terms of the arts and you do draw i might you, agree you draw with your computer which is very very uh, alien to me but uh, i understand that it's even when i draw by hands i draw by like isometric rules and orthographic rules mm. so it makes it easier but my lines are squiggly man <laughs> yeah so that the drawings of is a really interesting uh, thing to practice on a regular basis because it changes the way you see and understand things it's it's uh it's similar it's like using a different lens or whatever you know it changes your changes you your know, understanding i find that like uh, machines that i understand i can draw way better than anything else which is i guess is why like artists would have those bendable models or look at anatomy books or things like that but for me like i can, I can draw a pretty good sailboat or a race car or a truck sure. <laughs> i can draw the cameras but like Right. I don't know that I've observed anything close enough to. Uh, yeah, to you need to you need world. to draw an, you need to draw live octopi and stuff like that. Okay, so I wanted to talk about, I wanted to go back into, you know, kind of our old day uh, type of show where we talked about something, you know, a, a subject and we kind of ran it out. Um, and to, I've been really wanting to talk about large format uh, because I've been, um, you know, once again, I resisted large format for a very long time. I resisted uh anything larger than uh 120 roll film because i knew i'd have to get uh, a new developing tank i'd have to um you know uh invest in that end of it but now that i'm in uh i'm very much interested in uh larger format stuff so uh so i wanted to to talk about that i wanted to talk about large format as building materials um or excuse me, large format as as a camera build. Um, and I want to talk about the advantages, disadvantages, and then different things that we have to overcome uh, as we go. So uh, you guys can jump in at any time um, uh, you want on this. But, um, okay, so the biggest advantage, I think, is, is self-evident. The biggest advantage of a large format is the finer image quality due to... Um, the image being uh, a, a recorded on a recording medium that has the same size dots as the smaller recording medium, but um, many more of them per image. So, um, you, you know, like one of the things, uh, th this is the area where digital has not yet caught up. Um, if you talk about the, you know, 35 millimeter versus uh, a 42 megabyte Sony um, uh, 
what is it? The A7 R3. I mean, uh, at that point, um, you know, uh, the 35 millimeter has less of a resolution. But if we're talking about what film can still have as a resolution, a a four by five negative still has more information than, you know, a a digital uh, than pretty much any digital image that's out there. So that finer quality image is is certainly important. Um, one of the things, and this goes back to the box camera concept, because you have so much resolving capability and you have such a large negative, it is going to be theoretically at the end of the process enlarged much less. So like if you think about it, a four by five negative, I'm going to hold up a four by five negative and I'm going to put it right next to my phone. And if this four by five negative ends up on my on my phone, on my Instagram feed, it will have even at the highest resolution, even if I had it at, you know, uh, 600 DPI kind of resolution, it's going to lose information. Um, It's going to have more information on that negative than we're going to see in uh, in the final outcome. So. One of the things that you could do with a larger negative and a larger format is you can use a lower quality lens. So, um, you know, like uh, uh, a lens off of, um, you know, I mean, I guess you don't have to go to box camera quality, but you could use folding camera quality lenses as long as they had the coverage. Or if they had a little bit of vignetting, you know, no big deal. Or even, so, for instance, a pinhole. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Pinhole four by five is just uh, it's ridiculously. Um, I, I I guess ridiculously sharp because I like my pinholes to be a little bit fuzzy to as a, an acknowledgement that they're pinholes. But um, I can home drill, forget laser drilled with my hand, you know, drilling with a micro drill on with um uh, what I use is a pie, um, the bottom of an aluminum pie tin. You know, you go to the dollar s- store and get four or five of them, uh, and you cut out that bottom piece. It's a little, it, it's a, it's thinner than an aluminum can, so it gives you a, a that sharper entry point. And um, just with what I drill, I can drill um, uh, pinholes that on a larger negative will rival, um, you know, laser drilled pinholes for, for, uh, for 120. Um, so yeah, you, you can even definitely, you, you can go down that path. Um, so, um, you know, and, and the idea is that with larger format, um, a lower quality lens, even a, even a pinhole lens, it produces an adequate image. As opposed to, you know, I mean, uh, if you talk about, uh, you know, the the lenses that are coming out today for cameras, even the cheap, I uh, I have a, a cheap $70 lens, 35 millimeter F 1.2 lens for my Fuji, uh, for my Fuji digital camera. But it was $70 and it's an F 1.2 35 millimeter that is beautiful, right? And that surpasses you know um uh, the old 
you know, super high quality lenses, but it, uh, compared to a four by five image, sometimes it won't, uh, it won't surpass a lower quality image. So, or a lower, lower quality lens uh, for that image. So that is, um, uh, I, I think that that's, that lowers the entry cost if your lens is a low quality lens if or, or lower quality lens. Um, uh, right. That. So you end up paying in film though. So, <laughs> well, <laughs> but you can also use paper. That's part of the deal is that you can use paper and paper starts to recede back to 35 millimeter roll film or 120 roll film like prices. So it, and it depends on where you go and it depends on the size and all that type of stuff. And, and, uh, and we'll, We'll pick that up in 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 fact, actually, individual development is one of the advantages. Well, we'll pick up that in just a second, um, the the paper. But individual development is one of the uh, the advantages of working with four by five. And and part of the deal is if if you go through and you read the Ansel Adams uh, books that talk about the zone system. Uh, he talks about it in the negative and in the print. Um, the, uh, the idea with using that zone system where you place a, you know, your shadows in zone three and then you expose, and then that's, that's the foundation of your exposure is actually metering those shadows, uh, and you put them in zone three but it's a really high contrasty day. So then you develop, uh, you pull the developing. If it's a low or, yeah, you pull the developing. If it's a low contrast day, you uh, further the developing, you, you develop develop more. And if you want to get back into that, um, uh, Andrew Bartram does a great job of talking about that, the idea of placing your um shadows if you want to talk about the zone system a little bit uh andrew bartram has that um uh on the large format uh photography podcast large so let format me let film me photography <clears throat> yeah, yeah large format film photography podcast yeah andrew does discusses it very well but i did want to uh, say that what you're really talking about is the advantage of developing one sheet at a time because one the zone the zone system applies to any form of photography. I mean, even digitally, you know, that, but the advantage of uh, large format over roll film is that you can develop each sheet independently in response to the specific uh, dark to light gradient you're looking for in the result. So it, it makes the zone system more uh, efficient, but it, it doesn't, right. it doesn't, uh, it's still important in any ph method of photography. Well, I, yeah, and I'll and I'll agree with that. Um, the 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 big thing though is um, if you're going out and you're shooting one or two images of one thing, then you're going to another lighting situation, shooting one or two images of something else. You're gonna you're going to lose that advantage of the zone system on roll film because right. you cannot then develop your film at uh, to compensate for the scene. You have to. Um, uh, you know, develop it as a group and at a, at a neutral, and then you 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 lose part of that zone system. I just had an idea, though. So, you uh -huh. could you could design a camera that instead of rolling the 120 film onto a roller, it just kept clipping off the frames and spitting them into a little bag. 
<laughs> well, it, it would it can't go into a little bag because those can get out of order. Right. It's it would got have to, to be... go into something that collates them. Well, those uh, those those money counting machines in banks come to mind. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it spins off. This is a plus one development, plus one development, plus one development. Um, so anyway, um, so and that's part of uh, um, the idea. One of the things that we um, have to do as film photographers um, is that we are committed to the ISO once we put the film in and decide to shoot it, whether we're going to push it, pull it or shoot it at box speed. Um, we're, we're committed. Um, and, and there's latitude in film. There's and um, it, to to a greater or lesser degree. But the advantage of that single shot system is that you are committed to that ISO for only one shot. The next shot can be shot at anything right i know it, which it, is which is what modern digital cameras also provide so there's a, there's right. a f- funny way that they're they're parallel the, right exactly so so there was that period of you know uh up to uh say 1920 where most people were shooting uh, uh plates and then whether they're film or or glass, glass. plates or whatever um, but they're or or metal plates with the case of the Daguerreau and, you know, uh, mm-hmm. amber types and all those other ones. Um, so those are uh, so they they had that one shot system. And then we went to the commit to it for a roll system for the next hundred years. Now we're back at with digital. And, uh, you know, so anyway, that's kind of interesting. That's that's an interesting thing. So one of the things that's very nice is that is that you can use paper instead of film. Like right now, uh, I'm shooting. I, I love the the products that Photo Warehouse puts out under the Ultrafine brand because generally they're of a good quality and they are dirt cheap. And one of the parts uh, of that is that they have a paper line. Um, and a black and white darkroom paper line, and you can get 25 sheets for $16 and, uh, of eight by 10, then you, uh, you know, cut those up into four by five or just a little under four by five to fit a four by five holder. So, uh, it's, it, it becomes very cheap. I'm doing the math right now. So it's, um, Oh, hang on a second. Uh, 16 divided by 25 gives you 64 cents a sheet divided by four. So you're down to um, uh, 16 cents uh, per image, um, which is a little bit higher than 35 millimeter film, but it's not like outrageously higher. It's not multiples higher. So uh, so I think that that's uh, that's something that's pretty nice. Um, and uh, I it, what what do you guys say? You guys have a lot more of ch- uh, paper versus film in large format. Is th- do we see a huge quality drop off between paper and a film negative? Well, it depends on what you mean by quality. But um, you certainly- uh, sharpness. You lose um, you lose dynamic range usually. You lose some lose some sharp. Rack. You lose sharpness. Yeah. So it's a trade off. Um, yeah. But 
I think that the term quality is also one of these muddy things that it just one person's one person is going to like the paper negative better than another right. person's going to prefer film. And that that's just depends on what kind of image you're making. Ethan, you shoot a lot of paper and a lot of film. What do you see? Um, yeah, it's it's um, exactly what Nick said. Uh, OK, small, small latitude, um, less resolving power. You, you know, this whole thing about large format, I would uh, go down the list on our show notes and argue a lot of these right so i i think uh, argue as i bring them up what do you think yeah <laughs> yeah i i think um i don't know uh, when i shoot large format i feel like i could get higher quality from from smaller cameras when i'm using you know uh, box camera lenses type of thing um and and i think the i, I would also add that like the the best part of that large format is like the simplest to build, I think. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. That's the camera builder's point of view, but yeah. somebody, yeah. but somebody who just buys their cameras and why would I want one of these? That's plenty of <laughs> money. Like <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about that. Um, it, they're easier to build because you're not fiddling around with small parts, right? Yeah. Um, you, you can get proportionally more accurate, cuts and joints and all of those things as the joints get bigger and the cuts to a you point. know and, yeah. <laughs> yeah well sure sure exactly. uh, well yeah you can make so so it's just like the resolution in the paper if you're building a large object and you're a human being you can see big parts better and their the proportion right. of accuracy will get higher because if you make a sixteenth of an inch error in a tiny, tiny cogwheel that you know size of your fingernail, that's a huge error. If you make a sixteenth of an inch error in you know cutting out a big giant set of bellows or or you know the side of a box, you can fix it with glue. You know, no big deal, yeah. right? So yeah. it's 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 the same concept of resolution applies to the object you're building as as it does to the uh, film that it it can use. Yeah, I, I would say that I've been building cameras, um, taking advantage of this, right, because I only have a certain resolution on my 3D printers, and that's usually how I like to make things. And, um, you know, I've been trying to push that boundary towards smaller and smaller uh, film formats and cameras. Uh, but that's not my number one concern, really, if you look at any of my cameras. But I think, you know, starting at, at large format made things a lot, uh, a lot simpler, uh, especially in in sort of the where you had to push the tolerances of, of different things. And then I think some of it is just managing expectations. So when you're dealing with a big camera, once you hit four by five and larger, people's expectation of something they can handhold or carry easily or, you know, that it drops. You, you think, oh, it's big anyway, so why bother making miniature parts? Just make it big and heavy. It's already big and heavy. Who cares, right? Uh -huh. There's not much point in in you know in theory in making a miniature four by five but i think it's an interesting idea and then on the same uh by the same token if you if you most large format equipment is very old-fashioned and very simple and uses very basic um structures and that's actually wonderful it makes it easier to build makes it easier to uh, repair and work with these things but it isn't the only possibility i mean 
in a way, think about uh, Fuji's really gigantic medium format cameras and in, or Pentax 6.7. Uh, there are a few instances where somebody decided to make a camera that functioned like a miniature camera and just make it huge. And it's not, it's something we could do. I mean, the, the only thing holding digital back from that is that the sensors would be absurdly expensive um, <laughs> to make. <laughs> but there isn't any reason you you have to be, that we're discussing the, the way things are, but they don't have to be that way. You could decide right. to make an ultra miniaturized, super efficient, very complicated large format camera you could do it but it just becomes let there's less point in it there you know there's the rest less reason to do it because it's already going to be a big object sure sure absolutely um so uh one of the other things that i think is um uh, a great advantage of uh, of building these um is that the lenses that cover four by five are commonly lens in shutter combinations so uh the aperture and the shutter are already taken care of that's already available to you you don't have to um uh you know do anything outrageous to uh to you know build a shutter system or or even build um uh, you know waterhouse stops or anything like that that's already um usually uh, available in a lens that will cover a four by five or larger uh, image square. So that's that's something that's nice. And we'll talk about uh, where to source lenses in a couple of minutes. So um, one of my favorite advantages is that film transport is dead simple. Um, you know, so either you use a four by five or eight by 10 or five by seven um, negative carriers um, or you can just make a single shot camera where you uh, open up the camera, hopefully in a in a darkened environment and put in the paper, um, hold it down in some way. You can you, you can always double side tape uh, to the back of a box or something uh, for paper or for uh, for film. Well, I guess you could do that for film as well. Um, you can always do do a single shot, close it back up, take it out take that single shot and and you're done. So uh, one of the one of my biggest things that I always run into and I've just recently designed a new version of this and that is film transport. And I've just designed a new version um, uh, for 120 film transport for a, a camera I'm designing, a 3D printed camera that I'm designing. And I and my first you know, it was like one of those things where I had the had the inspiration, drew it out on a piece of paper, then went out and did a bunch of errands, came back and drew it on the um, uh, drew it in the 3D program and printed it. And the first version worked, which was way lucky. <laughs> well, awesome. That's, that's, <laughs> you know. uh, by the way, you're getting really good at uh, at at some uh, 3D drafting that I've been watching you do thank you thank you yeah you're just uh, start making real complicated things <laughs> yeah yeah and, and part of part of my problem is that uh i only get about three hours on monday and three hours on friday and you know and here we are on a monday and we're recording this instead that uh, helps with focus you know, spending though. that time it, it, it does help with focus yeah. you're absolutely right 
Uh, although if you want to do this and you want to do that and you want to do, you know, you want to, I mean, I, I yeah, do this all yeah, day sometimes yeah. for yeah. a week on end, two weeks on yeah. end, and there's still not enough time in the day. I finished right. yesterday with even more unfinished projects that I, uh, you know, than I have started. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, uh, so fil film transport really to me is one of the more difficult things that we can, uh, that we have to overcome and it's one of the more, uh, I mean, there are great solutions. You can always, um, you know, cannibalize a body and you can do that type of thing. But with large format, my God, they're just, they're out there. They're out there all over the place. So um, it, you, I don't think that you need to worry too much about that. So so what do you guys see as some of the disadvantages of large format? What's what's the What's the worst thing about large format? Nick, it takes a really it, long time to print all the parts. Yes. <laughs> if that's if that's your method of build, absolutely. But you know, if if your method of build is is uh is wood or paper or or you know something else, it, it's the same amount of time, isn't it? I've, a cut I've is been, cut. I've been banging know. out uh really quickly a prototype about a camera that we'll talk about later that I did a mix of like uh -huh. Laser cut birch, uh, laser cut acrylic, and 3D printed parts. And I got the parts down to, like, I finished the first version of the draft that went on the printers last night, and all of the 3D printers, uh, or all, all of the 3D printed pieces were done by the morning. It's, uh, yeah, mixed, okay. mixed material makes it. Yeah. Think, yeah. To, to me, it's just size, convenience, and handling. It's just the object and, and dealing with the film afterwards. So so the fact that with a roll film, I can just have someone else develop it. I can run it through scanning systems of, that I figured out very easily. Um, it, makes, it, makes, yeah. it makes shooting a little casually a lot more practical. But I don't know if that's always an advantage. Um, it's, you know, it's pretty easy if, if you're not focused to, to shoot a whole roll of 36, you know, 35 millimeter film and, and make fairly disappointing images. And one nice thing about, so it's one of those things where good news, bad news, right? So the, the awkwardness of large format makes it uh, less practical for some kinds of photography. The, you know, it's just hard to shoot cat quickly and casually. On the other hand, that discourages you from wasting a lot of film. So right, <laughs> it's, you know, it's a good news, bad news thing. I, and then as far as building cameras, uh, for me, the, the magic is always the, the magic spot is always in the middle. It's medium format because 35 millimeter is wonderfully um, convenient, but the cameras are actually harder to build. The tolerances are sm much smaller. There's just you don't have generous space um, between the lens and the film. So every little error is uh, magnified. So. I kind of like as far as practicality, the middle is the easiest, but uh -huh. large in large format, uh, it, it's possible to make, a, you know, a camera like the Camerodactyl OG is it's a point and shoot camera. The only thing that's less convenient about it is that you have single shots, uh, you know, that you have to carry a bunch of film holders. But yeah. that's a pretty small thing. And as you pointed out, it means you can develop them individually. You can change your mind, color black and white from shot to shot. All those things are actually kind of nice. So basically just designing yourself a really handy bag to fill up with film holders. Um, yeah. 
you know, yeah. and getting getting good at stuffing them in. And then, of course, the other side is that's depending on scale focus. If you're going to look at ground glass, then you really need a tripod and and then everything's inconvenient again. But right. Um, but then there's advantages to that because then you make sure your composition is good. So it comes down to the subject. If the subject is running away from you or constantly changing, if you have a dynamic subject like a person, a running animal, a moving vehicle, a waves, wind blowing, those kinds of subjects, you need the camera to be pretty fast and convenient to use. But if you get away or you need to have foresight, you need to get your tripod in the right place and be waiting there when when the events take place. Th those are the two kinds of limits. But once if those aren't a problem, if the kind of image you're making doesn't need that convenience, uh, then there's really no disadvantage. Um, and, the, and the big cameras start having advantages because there's a lot more things you can control and tweak. Um, they're easier to build and, and adjust and all of that. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'll go with that. Uh, you know, the, the tripod is a big deal. Um, I'm one of those people, I don't generally like shooting on tripods. Um, but with um, the tower press camera that I have, uh, I'm enjoying that quite a bit. But um, but that means another big, heavy thing to move around. Uh, and that limits your distance. That limits your, um, your you know, how how far can you really go away from your car or home? That's more um, a matter of your own fitness. So that so they used to photograph high in the mountains with glass, large, very ultra large. Yeah, but they glass had plate cameras. <laughs> But they had mule teams to haul that stuff up there. Yeah, yeah. And why don't you have a mule? I mean, come on, uh, get with it. I want a mule. I want a mule. I I think a mule is my spirit animal. Uh, so yeah, I buy that. But it is it is unfortunately a rented mule. So uh, <laughs> yeah. so okay. Um, one of the things that I'm going to talk about developing sheet film is a pain in the ass compared to roll film. You know, um, it, it, when I'm loading, say I'm loading two 120 rolls into, you know, into a tank, um, if it's six by six, that's 24 exposures that I have loaded into a tank in about, uh, I don't know, three, four minutes. Um, but uh, developing sheet film is um is considerably more uh difficult for one thing if you have 24 uh exposures um then you, you're going to it's going to take you you have to load 24 film hangers or or like i have um one four by five tank that will hold six and one four by five tank that'll hold four so that means i can develop 10 at a shot before I have to go reload. So that's three developments for that 24 exposures. So that's a little bit of a pain. So be prepared for, for that type of thing. So I just, uh, I just thought of something else though. Um, so uh -huh. when we, we were talking about just a minute ago about the convenience of shooting a small camera, but I'm sometimes that's really deceptive. So think of it this way, how many 35 millimeter squares or rectangles can you fit on a sheet of four by five film? It's a bunch, right? Yeah. So you're so in, 
from the you know point of view of just information, each sheet you're developing is worth quite a few of those little squares. You know, it's just Nick and I are going to start a business where we chop up your four by fives. That's a thirty-five millimeter. Right, right. Uh, now here, thirty-five millimeter. But think, but think back to when we're talking about, well, about the convenience of shooting. So my dad used to shoot a, a, a four by five crown graphic for a newspaper job, right? And what those guys did is they used slightly wide lenses, uh, usually a 135 on four by five, which is something roughly like a 35 millimeter. So it's a pretty wide field of view. Right. And they also stood back. You, you didn't shove them right in someone's face to get a close up, right? You stood back and you got the whole scene with each shot. And that meant you didn't have to aim very carefully. And if you think about it from a resolution point of view, it's like the difference between, you know, shooting with a, a rifle and a shotgun. If uh-huh. you've got a wide angle lens and just tons of resolution, you don't have to, you know, get aim at the politician's face. You can shoot the whole scene and you might get a whole lot more interesting information if you can see, you know, the flunkies in the background as well as the politician right. close up. And from an information point of view, you have the same close-up view of the face in there in the middle of that 4 by 5 negative. So it's different. You can stand back. You can watch a whole situation develop. You only have one shot at a time, but you get much more in it. And with, you know, with a, a fairly stop-down camera or with a giant you know, smoking flash on there, you can get um, a sharp image pretty, pretty easily even handheld because you don't have to aim carefully you know you just point it and blam you've got this giant bunch of information all at once so right it's 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 we've become accustomed to peering through a lens and trying to get everything to happen in that viewfinder and then hitting the button and that has trained us to think a certain way about this but the the other way of approaching it has advantages if you don't have your head your face pressed to this tiny little you know telescope view of the world if you're standing back and just watching things develop that can be an advantage okay yeah i i think that that's absolutely right that's the only argument that i can come up with for um the resolution you get out of uh, an a7r three four five whatever they're on um use right a wider now, lens because, fire yeah right right yeah just just you know, shoot from here and um, and then crop later. So uh, and that's exactly the same concept. So, yep. Uh, yep. absolutely. So, OK, so let's talk about like sourcing parts and uh, lenses and stuff like that. Uh, but let's start with uh, film holders. So um, uh, it, it, let's talk about four by five, five by seven, eight by ten and larger film holders where would you go ethan go to besides ethan. oh okay i thought you were gonna say my garage yeah i mean I, that's what i do but that's what <laughs> i i don't know like there's some things that i would buy at uh kdh if they have it um but something that's like pretty commoditized I just yeah buy whatever yeah. quality you want get yourself a deal or not doesn't matter they've always got them yeah, yeah, yeah in yeah. in this part of the world there's uh, people have closets full of film holders, it turns out. You know, the, the, oh, I live where there's a lot of older retired people, and there's a, quite a lot of this stuff still floating around. So people have given me several dozen 4x5 film holders in great conditions mm-hmm. over the last couple of years. You know, they they don't they don't want to bother selling them, and they don't want to throw them away. And they're like, what? You actually use these? Here. <laughs> yeah. Cool. <laughs> 
Wow, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and uh, and I was going to say eBay. Um, <clears throat> if you can get to a camera store, they're going to have a hundred of them uh, or more. Um, like I, uh, when I was at Ball Photo in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, um, I I I was going to you know see see what the price was on uh, four by five holders because Nick had sent me a bunch. Um, but, uh, I, I asked and they said, oh, uh, $10. And so it's like $10 for a four by five holder. Might as well scoop them up. So I got three more because there were three that looked brand new, Mm -hmm. um, that were just right there, you know? And if I had thought about it, I might've, might've pulled out more, but, uh, so that's, uh, that's definitely, um, you know, uh, a source um, but yeah, but they're, they're all over eBay. I think they're a little bit high on eBay. I mean, I've seen them go, uh, for, for much more than I would, than I would expect to see. Sure. But there's um, deals to begin. I mean, like if you yeah. can get it at a camera store, cool, but like chances yeah. are you're searching for it on the internet. It's not, yeah. uh, once they ship it, camera stores don't make very much money on the on the right. item, yeah, yeah, yeah. the type yeah. of thing that they list online all the time. Yeah. I bet um, KEH would. Oh, say that again? I said I bet, I bet KEH would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that they have tons. Uh, okay, so what about handling the film? Um, what about, you know, like loading? Um, uh, do it in what, the dark. <laughs> <laughs> do it in the dark. Do it in a dark bag. Um, it, when you're shooting, um, uh, film negatives, they should have a notch in the upper right hand corner. So if you are holding it in portrait orientation, uh, if there's a notch in the upper right hand corner, that means that the emulsion is facing you. If it's in the if upper right, wrong, it's in the lower left hand corner. Yeah. Uh, well, or the lower left hand corner, if you, if you're holding it. If you've got it rotated. Um, I mean, how uh, do you load your sheet film holders? <laughs> well, actually, I do them left to right. So it's um, so it's in the lower oh, right. I but, didn't even but, consider that as a possibility, how how a civilized human would load their film right, holders. <laughs> right, exactly. But, but the idea, that was the reason why I said, if you hold up the film um, and, and have the emulsion facing towards you, the notches are in the upper right. And one of and the reason why I said that is if you look at the notch patterns, they're always shown in in that orientation with the with the film in portrait orientation holding you know in the upper right. Um, well, unless, you, uh, unless you hold the instructions upside down. Yes, and thank you a lot for contributing that uh, <laughs> to our knowledge base there. Uh, so. <laughs> So, okay, so let's go to lens sourcing. Um, I, I want a lens. I, I don't really know. I, I want to make sure I have a, a four by five coverage. Um, and I want a fairly normal lens. Now, it, let's talk about that. Let's talk. Actually, um, uh, there are, uh, I have actually um, on my phone, on my web browser, on my phone, I usually have several pages that are already dialed in, but there's one page I never go away from. And it is uh, the, it's a website 
called pointsinfocus.com. And I will put it in, hang on a second, there's more to the name. Oh, point or points with an S. Points. Points in for, points in <laughs> focus dot com slash tools slash depth hyphen of hyphen field hyphen and hyphen equivalent hyphen lens hyphen calculator. Okay. If you type that in but my point is write this that, down right now with a pen put it in your wallet stop, I did. stop driving <laughs> well this is this is actually something that that is very important for anybody who uh makes a camera that is then going to be uh zone focused because it will give you a depth of field chart for different uh, apertures, which I think is is super huge. But if you go down to the bottom, uh, you can put in a field of view and then an aperture and then a distance, and it will tell you, um, you know, so what your depth of field is on that. That's what I originally went to it for. But down on the bottom, it will give you the equivalent. So I have put in uh, four by five, and uh, as my sensor size, focal length 152 millimeters. And if you go down, it's equivalent on a full frame camera is 40 millimeters. So, um, that so what's it, is, the equivalence that you're talking about is angle of view, correct? Yes, it is an angle of view equivalent. Now, if you you can also put in the aperture in this point f8. F8 aperture at 152 on a 4x5 has the equivalent aperture for depth of field is equivalent aperture of F2 on a 40 millimeter lens. So that's uh, that it, it's it, go go ahead and play with that um, because that's that's an incredible um, uh, resource. Uh, so so it's great. I haven't seen this before and I bookmarked it. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, that's so uh, okay. So I'm going to ask you guys. You have a you're going to make a four by five camera, and you need to make sure that it has a um, a, a coverage of four by five. Where are you going to go looking for a lens? What are you What are you looking for in a lens? Well, so the this this dumbest way to think about it is most of the time they'll say the format the lens is designed for. If if you're looking at a thorough description of a lens, it'll say it's for four by five or whatever. But what you're looking for is the image circle that it projects. You need to make sure the lens has a big and makes a big enough circle to cover the film in the back of your camera. Um, and this this brings me to something that we're going to talk about in a little bit. But I think with all of this thinking about how this stuff works. The most useful thing is to imagine that you're a tiny person inside the camera. And if you're inside a camera, the lens is shining a bright conical beam of light at the back of the camera, just like looking at a slide projector shining on a screen. And if you think of that, this whole thing in those terms, then when you're inside a camera, you're going to see this cone of light getting bigger and bigger as it gets farther away from the, the lens 
projecting an image on the back of the camera, which happens to be upside down and backwards, but that doesn't really matter. What's important is that that if you take a slide projector and a screen and then uh, turn them on, now take the screen and tilt it, and you'll see that the rectangular image turns into a trapezoid as you tilt it. So the part of the screen that's closer to the lens gets wide, you know, the image gets smaller, and the part of the screen that's farther away from the lens, the image gets wider. And that's what's going on when you tilt the back of a large format camera. And the same goes for if you tilt the slide projector, that's as if you're tilting the front, stand, uh, front standard of the lens, and you'll see the same effect. The, the, uh, what's actually happening is you're changing the distance between the lens and the surface you're projecting on. And that changes because as you imagine, the cone gets smaller as you get closer to the lens, then you're gonna get a smaller image as you get closer and a bigger one as you get farther away. And that tilting of the lens versus the film plane is something you can just play with by playing with a, if you have an old slide projector, you know, use that. Or you could build yourself a giant camera obscura and you know and go inside and and you know have a big piece of cardboard that you tip around. Um, but there's a lot of different ways to do this. But you can recreate the experience of being inside a camera, and that's how you have to think to to understand all this large format shenanigans. Once you've once you've done that, where what you going to do to find that lens what are you going to do to uh to source it well you type into google large format lens (laughs) (laughs) or or ebay um that's sure and keep Uh, it use the internet just that is the internet's a really good place to shop (laughs) okay hang on a second but, but. And we're done. Okay, so we're done. Uh, okay, for the rest of everything, uh, we had a whole show planned, but uh, we're only about halfway through. But guess what? Just check the internet. <laughs> okay, so maybe what you're asking is what kind of lens you're looking for. So I started in yeah. with this whole long thing about image circles. So you want to make sure that when you put this lens on the camera and then you crawl in there and look at the picture, the circle is big enough to cover the film. That's one thing. And that, and then this, if you're going to start uh, wiggling the lens around, then it circle has to be even bigger because you need some room to tilt things. Right. Uh, so that's something you can find spec sheets. And we've talked about this before. There's places online where they have detailed breakdown it's all on the internet. of the, of the image circle of the lens and all of that. Or you could, you know, use my method and stick your head inside the camera and see what's going on. Uh, either way, um, that's the, the first thing. And of course, with a large format camera, usually you need it, not always, but usually you need a built-in shutter uh, on the lens. And I wanted to bring up another thing while we're talking about what kind of lens you need. You mentioned that the bigger the film, then the crappier the lens you can get away with using. But there's actually some good news, which is that another advantage of large format is that it's almost always accomplished by moving, focusing is accomplished by moving the lens back and forth relative to the film. And that is very different than the typical focusing of a, of a typical single lens reflex camera with interchangeable lenses. Because usually, in order to get uh, interchangeable lenses, you need to have a constant flangeback dif- distance. And therefore, you need uh, to focus by changing the uh, distance between elements within the lens. And that's a completely different way of, of focusing. 
it's a, it turns out someone just explained this to me. It turns out what you're doing when you move the elements back and forth in an internal focusing lens or a front element focusing lens, turns out what you're actually just doing is you're changing the focal length of the lens slightly, which changes the effective distance of focus. So it's that's actually all that's happening. It's a very simplistic thing, um, uh -huh. but it adds complexity to the lens. And adding complexity to the lens makes the lens designer's job harder. So the good right. news about unit focusing, where you move the whole lens back and forth, is that simpler lens designs perform better, which means you not only can get away with a crappier lens on large format, but you essentially get much more performance out of a simpler lens. And it's so large format lenses are not lower quality. They're, in fact, often higher quality than what you will right. find on because the job of the designer is easier and they can you can get more performance out of less glass essentially one of the great advantages of a large format camera is that the um maximum aperture the widest open it can be now they're often relatively small so, you know, like I was talking about on a 152 millimeter lens, um, the maximum aperture being F8. Well, that's the equivalent of F2 for for um, uh, for depth of field on a on a 35 millimeter camera on a 50 millimeter uh, for a 50 millimeter lens for a 35 millimeter camera. That's All right. the, yeah. uh, the the F2 uh, is equivalent to that. The problem is well, wait, that it wait, doesn't wait. let in the same amount of light. Yeah, so that's the trouble with talking about this. So yes. uh, we think of it as an absolute, but it's not. In terms of the amount of light it lets in, it's a proportionate uh, number. So, you know, there are two things going on, depth of field and amount of light. And then when we compare uh, large format to small formats, we're also dealing with a completely different depth of field uh, situation because... This is where field of view gets important. So when we talk about normal lenses, we're really just talking about field of view because that drives where you have to stand when you take the picture. And this is what really throws people off with all of this discussion. Large format lenses are much longer to give you the same field of view. Therefore, they have much less depth of field. But the good news is, they also have proportionately much larger f-stop apertures to let in the same proportionate amount of light to light that much bigger film area. And it turns out that depth of field, it's, it's much less, but because the hole is much bigger, you can get away with a much smaller proportionate aperture. So so you so, can get a lot of bokeh in the daytime without a neutral density filter over your video camera. And right. the amount of diffraction when you stop down, that's what limits stopping down. So if I stop down uh, a 35 millimeter camera to F16, I'm starting to get a decrease in uh, image quality due to diffraction. But that's not a proportionate thing. That's absolute hole size. So an F16 uh, hole on a 35 millimeter camera is the same size as maybe an f64 hole or a tiny even tinier hole on large format it's physically the same size and diffraction is 
caused by the actual size. So the smaller the hole in actuality, not proportionately, the, the, the more diffraction. So what, what all that leads up to is with large format, you can stop much farther down without the uh, diffraction being a problem. So you can get your depth of field back by using a really, really tiny aperture with your large format camera. And, just, the uh, problem is that you also are cutting, you are losing a lot of light because the bigger film needs that bigger hole to let more light in. So you can solve depth of field, but what happens is you end up with a slow shutter speed or fast film to compensate. And um, uh, one of the things also to note is that on large format lenses, um, F32, F64, those are F45 that's in between those um are often available um you know some even go to 128 um, right i think you, yeah you eight need by them. 10 uh lenses go to 128 right um so so that is um and that can give you an incredible sharpness at full depth of field at at at, at, at essentially everything within reason and uh, you know within reason is is in the photographer's mind but that's the that's the idea mm -hmm. so okay um let's see uh one of the things one of the concerns about lenses that i i think people need to uh remember is a uh, as um the 20th century progressed uh film uh speeds uh, considered that were that were considered normal progressed as well so if you're uh, looking at you know a good a mid-range speed on film today the the average mid-range speed on 35 millimeter roll film today is 400 is what i would consider um you know there's there's um yeah, faster film or and you can always push film faster but 400 seems to be like a pretty standard medium. But if we were to go back to the 80s, maybe that's 100 speed film. And if we were going to go back to the 60s, maybe that's 50 or 64 speed film. You go back to the 50s and maybe that's 32 or 25 speed film and, you know, and so on. So film advanced through the 20th century. Um uh, of what was considered normal. So if you are shooting on with a uh, film that is considered normal with 400 speed film, well, 400, the sunny 16 rule uh, on for 400 speed film is one 500th at F16. So that was generally beyond um 60s SLRs they would they would you know maybe 60s SLRs would go to up to 1 500th but they wouldn't generally go past that um but 80s uh, spotmatic SLRs, was a, spotmatic was a thousandth of a second I yeah well, right right and that's the that's the 1000 and k1000 right uh is that it had 1000th um uh you know and but you know if you if you buy those tail end um slrs they don't even have to be the the autofocus ones but they would go up to four thousand and eight thousand uh four thousandth and eight thousandth of a second um well guess what you're not going to get that on your large format uh camera so um 
and you're uh, not and you're not really going to have a use for it either so that's okay yeah because i mean those are all for um you know for fast moving objects right if you uh, if you can if you can stop down to f64 you don't need to go down to a four thousandth of a second right. right so that was that was the other end of it like i have i have a really nice uh 152 millimeter ektar um that f4.5 that um is uh it it can uh stop down to f64 but its fastest shutter speed is one two hundredth so my hp5 that's in there that sunny 16 hp5 is blasted out by a stop so you know uh even at its fastest shutter speed so that's something to think about but generally you can um work on the other end of the uh you can work on the aperture end of your exposure triangle um and then also if you're shooting paper you know i i go back and forth uh sunny 16 on one iso is one second right <laughs> so um i you know often i'm shooting um at one tenth of a second at 4.5 so that that's um, uh, that's a lot of fun to do, but but that's what you're going to look for on uh, on shutter speeds uh, and for lenses. Now, if you've got a hand camera like the Camera Dactyl OG, you might want some of those faster shutter speeds, right, Ethan? Mm-hmm. Yes. Is Ethan still with us? Doesn't matter. It's still true. Oh, Ethan is. Oh, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, there we go. Well, Ethan is and I with just started us. Talking. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sorry about that, guys. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, um, I've been shooting a lot of paper negatives because I've been playing with these uh, actually paper positives, and um, I'm always shooting way slower than I would like. But yeah, one of these days I'll set up some big studio strobes. So so yeah, uh, but for a for a hand camera, uh, you know, generally in your camera yeah, if back, I, if I have some you know Tri-X or or even T Max one hundred, and I'm out in the desert, and I mean I, I'm not exactly sure how far I can stop it down, but yeah, it'd be nice to have a faster shutter speed, but it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I, if you're shooting at one two hundredth of a second, you can pretty much free freeze camera shake. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm not shooting so. sport. Yeah. yeah, but there is there is one thing to add um, okay. at the end of this, which is we haven't really talked about camera movements except for imagining that you're inside a you know, slide <laughs> slide projector room. But there is this whole other reason for large format, which is the ability to adjust the relationship between the lens and the film plane by tilting things this way and that. And it gives you not only control over... Uh, you can skew perspective. You can screw around with perspective, um, modify it from reality to how you want it to look. And this is starting to allow you to do what your brain does for you. You're starting to be able to change reality in ways that perhaps look better to the human eye by tilting uh, the film plane or the lens. But there's another thing you can do when you tilt the lens or the film plane you also change the way the plane of focus encounters the film. So if you picture a normal camera where everything's parallel, lens is parallel to the film, the plane of focus, when you have sharpest focus, should exactly cover the film. 
But if you then tilt either the film or the lens, the plane of focus will intersect the film at an angle and will become a line. If you tilt the lens up or down, you get a the plane of sharp focus becomes a horizontal line. If you tilt it left or right, which is called swing, the plane of focus becomes a vertical line where it intersects the film. And this actually allows you to play around with depth of focus. You can use a wider f-stop and get things in focus from front to back if they line up on one of these planes and you then tilt the lens to kind of angle the plane of focus so that it reflects reality. And then we could get into the discussing all the little tricks for remembering how to do this. I'm not going to bother with that here, but it's another point uh, of these simple adjustable cameras that allows you to get you know more depth of field than you could uh, just with the apertures provided. And, and one of the things that I've been toying with, I've been thinking about this um, uh, four by five camera in my in my brain, um, and with the idea of uh, making a back that has movements, but I want them to be as fluid as possible, so like that all four joint. corners, yeah, well, so that all four corners would adjust. Um, you know, uh, and, and are I, you talking about like flexing the film plane? No, I was not talking about flexing the film plane, but that is something you could do. I was talking about, you know, uh, a planar back that, um, but it, just think of, um, oh, oh, so like that's, the one how on the, Mamiya press. that's how the Mamiya press works. My Mamiya yeah. press is one of the ones that has, it has a, a screw thread in each corner so that you can push any corner of the film plane in and out independently or together as you choose so it's basically it just gives you tilt it gives you rear tilt and swing uh but instead of you know having a a frame that wiggles back and forth you just uh you just you're just tight you're lengthening bolts essentially to to move the plane back and forth yeah yeah so it's just a a free floating tilt and swing is essentially exactly talking about yeah yeah absolutely so yeah. that and I and I think that that would be relatively easy on for a home built camera. Yeah, uh, there there does there does have to be an adjustment in the lens though. You need to be able to move the lens back closer to the film plane to use that method. Um, okay, so, well, or what if the if the um, if the lens is on a, a bellows system, then it's easy. Uh, then it's, the, yeah, yeah. Interesting on the Mimia Press, it's not bellows. Those are interchangeable lens helical focus. Right. It's still unit focusing, but they're locked to a helical that's always the same distance from the film plane. So what they do is they have a lens that uh, is retractable. And so when you're using the rear standard, you click the lens to its retracted position and it gets the right amount closer to the film plane to allow you to use those rear movements. It's cool. lately um, i'm going to spain so i had to uh put like a little sign up on my store that says you know if you order something i won't fill it until end of october early november and i've been working real hard to get out the orders that um you know have come in 
before I put that sign up. And uh, also I got this giant printer that'll print like a 20 inch cube area. And so I've been working on printing an eight by 10, which has more than two weeks of printer hours, like running the printer 24 hours a day without pausing to change filament over two weeks at this point. And I've made um, two mistake uh, well, not mistake, like uh, one I crashed the printer on and one I was new to reloading the filament. And um, actually, I'm going to turn my video on for a second so you guys can see this thing. Um, so that's very okay. interesting because it's inverse. It's the inverse of what we talked about earlier. If we're if you were cutting wood, the bigger the camera is, then the, the smaller the error problem. But sure. you've got it reversed. Now you're, it's taking so much longer that the chances for some kind of screw up go up instead of down. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely. yeah, you got a point there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but the ability to make precision parts at this scale is really nice as well. Oh yeah, be great. Uh, but it's going to just take a long time. So um, here I, I'm holding it up so Graham oh. can see. It's maybe I don't know, <laughs> like a 17 inch cube that's got like a uh -huh. roll of filament into it. Um, I, I think I'll be fabricating wheelbarrows for you. Yeah. So I can, I can put this thing over my head. Hold on. I've got to take my... Yeah. Okay. So, just so everybody can get the idea. Uh, it is... Um, it has it is. dimensions that are similar to maybe a briefcase. It is square rather than rectangular. But it's about briefcase size. Um, yeah. 17-inch square with some rounded corners and the beginnings oh. of some threaded holes and uh cold shoes and i can even see your tears in it i can yeah see the tears. yeah this is like a two and a half day print after i lost a one and a half day print the first time oh. so i'm printing yeah. something else i'm gonna think about better ways but like the last time it just crashed because i did not have the um wires and the bowden tube going to the extruder uh, tied up and so they got <laughs> stuck in the print at something like two days <laughs> but, you know, I could see a, a benefit to something that big, which is if I'm trimming it to make it uh, an adjustment and I can use my angle grinder on that gigantic plastic part. So he was waving around this camera part that was, you know, it was huge. It was gigantic, but it's plastic. So it's lightweight. And this is definitely going to be interesting. These these uh, yeah, these huge plastic cameras are going to be like nothing you've ever seen before. Well, well, I, I think that there's something there's something to that, um, because then it, it, everybody has access to eight by ten printer paper or eight by ten printing paper. Right. Yeah. Um, whereas eight by ten film is prohibitively expensive. Eight by ten paper is not. So I, I think that I think that if you if you build that in as your market to a certain extent. Then, so what, I'm, what I'm thinking is like yeah. um, I, I have had an 8x10 for the purpose of shooting film on my dream camera journal list for quite a long time now. But um, when doing those uh, reversal uh, direct positive tests a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. uh, I I just became interested again in shooting like a bunch of direct positive um, black and white and maybe color uh, at some point. Um, and, I, and I thought, like, once I got that sort of working, um, now I, I kind of need a 8x10 that I can use, like, a point-and-shoot. It would be nice. Um, so and I, I think the print would be would be really nice right out of camera, right? It's like, um, 
I don't know, photo paper. It looks so, good. <laughs> so I like, I like what, um, I like, this is where I'm, I think maybe I can lean on you to be a little more, more modular. So this would be a camera <laughs> where making a back and a front that can be used on many different configurations make a lot of sense because, you know, if you had your film holder part figured out and your lens holder part figured out, and then you could play around making all sorts of boxes to connect them out of different materials, everything from bellows to, you know, plywood to whatever, you know, you happen to want to play with it. It would, uh, it, it would open up a lot of possibilities without having to print a, a million different versions of the camera. It's interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did not think of it as something for a bellows mount, but I guess, so in this piece that I'm, I'm holding and looking at now, um, you know, it has a pop out in the back. I didn't pop it out yet. I'm going to do that as a test of just like support material for a flange um, that the nose cone goes into. Uh, but I don't see why I couldn't make a flange like, I mean, it's skinny in some parts for some technical reasons, but this is just the first prototype. Um, at some point, maybe I could build a flange that um, will take all different types of things, right? So I could have a bellows on that flange or a bag bellows or whatever. Sure. But I, I also think that this camera is unnecessarily huge. Um, I have a lens that's pretty long. It's a 14 inch Ektar. Um, and that lens requires like a kind of a, um, well, I don't know. I got to think about this problem a little bit. Uh, <laughs> well, so the, so the lens that I'm the lens I have to play with weighs four pounds. So yeah, it, it's definitely going to need some very secure attachment point. Yeah. So actually, um, I have, uh, I, I, what I've tried to do is balance the attachment point. Um, I'm, I'm not able to like calculate the, um, center of gravity of the thing off of the CAD model and the software I'm using, or, or I don't know how to. Um, and so I've sort of guessed in the first model, I'm sure I will move them around, but also, I am concerned about, I mean, this camera piece weighs, I don't know, two, three pounds. Um, you know, maybe, maybe the whole camera will weigh like close to 10 pounds, maybe 11, depending upon the weight of the lens. Um, I, I might have to come up with some sort of big metal piece or, or mounting system. Not so sure. Will this, will this be a rigid plastic body? Is that what you're planning? Yeah, it's it's totally like the. I mean, in function, it's totally like the uh, OG four by five, right? But so, so a lot of the dimensions it, change as it gets scaled up. So, are you going to make a gigantic uh, helical focusing mechanism? Yes, that's on the printer right now. When I gave up trying to print this part, I get so frustrated, and I don't think I have enough days here to complete it. So, I'm I'm printing the inner helical now. It's and will it <clears throat> will it have spokes like the old? Uh, steering wheel of a sailing ship from the, the <laughs> <No>. ship days. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, it'll just have a regular, regular helical. <laughs> <laughs> and will the human hand be able to wrap around this? <laughs> this is a concern I have, right? So like on the OG, I have that big three eighth inch screw that locks down the focusing and I use it as kind of like a focusing tab, like kind of like a lens. Right. Um, lets me focus real like a, like a, quick focus knob on a Hasselblad too. 
Um, and so I think I may have to do that, but I'm unsure what the, the sort of torque forces are uh, when somebody goes to try and rotate a focusing ring that's 15 inches in diameter. It's a little ridiculous. Um, and so, yeah, that's something I will have to experiment with and, and figure out. Like, it could have been so much easier as like a sliding box camera, but I, I would like it to be, you know, fast to use. Mm-hmm. Well, I think if you probably are going to want to have some kind of a, you know, a, a wheel or sled to. to give the... <laughs> no. I think you're moving into my wheelbarrow territory. No, here. You know what I did on this one? <laughs> it's it's a it's a new thing I put in um, like neck strap. Excuse me, just dropped it. Uh, neck strap lug. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that was the sound of one part of this camera falling to the ground. <laughs> oh, this is great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. And when okay. you say when you say neck strap, you're actually talking about something like an ox yoke, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking more like a ratchet strap. <laughs> Okay. Or, I mean, this this sounds like a steady cam kind of situation, you know. Where, it's it's going to be it's, big. It's going to yeah. be too big to travel with. But I think I really love shooting eight by tens. I just like I went to a goat roast with my friends. I took some four by five direct positives, and I think eight by tens would just be, you know, nicer. You you don't necessarily need to take this thing backpacking. It's the size of a you know a bear can. Maybe I can make a dual purpose bear can and camera, but oh, I don't that's think a great idea. Yeah. What are those round yes. things? Oh, there's still some salami in there. <laughs> yeah. <That's true. laughs> well, I mean, it does secure your camera in a tree for a while, right? <laughs> uh, so no, I mean, oh, with a bear can you can leave them on the ground. Oh, okay. It's like okay. a beer barrel for food. Right, and you get oh, okay. you'll, you'll get the classic picture of the bear destroying the, the you know the the camera. That's <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. It's yeah. Self it, bear bear selfies. Right. Yeah. I think it would be a really fun camera also to shoot um, like a portrait project, like uh, go to go to some party and shoot uh, you know a hundred pictures and develop them there and then give them out. Actually, Not I think. I think the bear canister cam is a good idea. I used uh, to. I, I used don't to. Attract bears. When I was when I was back in the heavily more heavily into mountaineering, one of my uh, thoughts was that you could if you could make a combination helmet and cook pot, you know, you Ooh, could save some weight. Unless the rock fall started while you were making your porridge, and then there'd be a problem. But no, I think generally. I mean, maybe it's not your most extreme gear, but for a <laughs> for a general purpose, rock climbing, it's probably a, a good. Maybe your head would smell like soup. It probably <laughs> it does anyway. If you, after a couple of days in the backcountry, your head smells like soup anyway, so it doesn't. Matter. If if I'm lucky, my head smells <laughs> like soup. <laughs> Yeah, so I haven't been doing a whole lot lately. The thing that I've focused on is I'm trying to get going, selling off extra gear because I've got too much stuff and it's getting in my way and I'd rather have money than this much stuff. I, I started writing 
the most useful combinations of cameras and lenses that I want to use. And I quickly got to more than one, you know, shoot, shooting one once a week, I would go more than a year. And that's just way too much stuff. So I'm now trying to whittle it down <coughs> and sort out what's really valuable. And the trouble is that you have all these emotional attachments to pieces of equipment that may or may not be making good pictures for you. And so you have to find some way of <coughs> triage, some way to decide what things are worth using and what things are just getting in the way. And I'm trying to base it on pictures like, you know, forget about how you feel about this, this lens or this camera, but look at the pictures it delivers. Are, you know, are they something that uh, you care about? And that's the best way to go about it. But now and again, you'll find a lens that even though it makes beautiful pictures, annoys you so much or a camera, it's just so awkward that even though it does a great job, you need to get rid of it because it's just slowing you down. So I'm going through this uh, semi-rational process of sorting everything out, deciding what is useful and what isn't. Unfortunately, this whole homemade camera thing complicates it because a lot of times, you know, you hold <laughs> you hold on to something appearing. because you're thinking, oh, I know I might be able to make, you know, this crazy invention out of that if I just hang on to it. And so, yeah. And then, yes, the cameras themselves reproduce and you end up with more and more of them because you build them. <laughs> yeah that's my my problem i i keep hearing about it i keep hearing about how i'm building more cameras and i, I have, have so, no storage for cameras so yeah i have so yep. many like semi-functional uh cameras that are in different states of prototyping i have like a, a seven foot tall by two foot wide shelf uh you know <laughs> maybe six seven shelves filled with uh -huh. Uh, pieces of cameras <laughs> right right yeah man but tell me about it uh, but i still think it's worth thinning because I, I feel like i'm not a one camera one lens type of person you know definitely that's not i'm never going to be i'm not interested in that but there is a limit for everybody even if you're someone who likes to use a lot of different types of you know camera and types of equipment and different kinds of film all of that you can get so much clutter that you're not doing any worthwhile work anymore. Uh, so that's something to, I think it's worth, that's worth thinning. And also it maybe helps, it may help focus on what's important and what isn't in terms of designing and building cameras in the future. You know, there's no point in reproducing something that you don't use. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you on that. Um, so, I've, um, I've, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I've gone in phases, right? I've, I've had like, three, 400 cameras while buying and selling cameras. <laughs> no emotional attachment to anything, just dollar widgets. But um, yeah, yeah, I, I got down to a minimum and then I've been collecting some cameras that I wanted to look at their pieces and disassemble. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so I shouldn't mail your, uh, your... Oh, no, please do your, not. I will... Your dead uh, camera for a month. Let me know when you're back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I'm going to send some broken cameras uh, for to Ethan for dissection. Let's <laughs> see what I can do. I've been I've been on a, a roll lately. Um, I fixed the aperture in an old uh, 35 millimeter 35 uh, super multicolored Takumar, and I fixed um, a Zorki whose shutter curtains had come off, and I fixed a Pentax. Well, I mostly fixed but it's not perfect a pentax spot spotmatic whose mirror silvering had come off due to like a corrosive gunky foam light seal um 
That was actually pretty interesting. I, I resprayed the mirror with some mirror spray paint. Say that 10 times fast. Um, yeah, I just did that kind of stuff for a couple of cameras. I found a Olympus XA1 for $8.50, and it turned out it just needed light seals and a new battery, and it's working perfectly. Cool. So that was interesting to, to deal with the light seals in such a tiny plastic camera. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little harder to do than I expected because tolerances are... are uh, yeah. Do you use that important. cuttable foam? Yeah, I use I cut my own seals out of the... the uh, pre it has a sticky back with a yeah, exactly. peel off back yeah so i i use that with like electronics tweezers mm-hmm. same yep that's what i do yeah. too okay it is fiddly it's fiddly but it's easy okay um i'll go if you guys are okay with that yeah sure. i'll talk about uh what i've been doing lately um i i have been uh working with uh the system that Ethan has been, uh, uh, if you go to camera dactyls, uh, the camera dactyl YouTube. YouTube page. Yeah. It took me a while to come up with the word <laughs> YouTube, uh, with the, uh, if you go to his YouTube page, you'll see him developing direct positives. And I've been working along those lines, but I've also, um, you know, I'm, I'm figuring out my stuff versus the stuff that he's using and all that type of stuff. And I'm also at the same time shooting on a brand new camera. And um, so what I've decided to do is to put the direct positive um, images on black and white uh, photographic paper. uh, I'm putting that to the wayside for for a moment and and just working with the paper negatives on figuring out my camera how to shoot it, how to run it, what I need to do shooting paper negatives, uh, because I've not really shot paper negatives before. So so I'm going through that whole uh, process. Um, I did um, shoot, but I've yet to develop the um, Canamorph. And the Canamorph is a um, half-cylinder uh, 3D-printed camera um uh, pinhole camera and it has a uh pinhole in the lid and a pinhole directly opposite of the uh curvature so uh i've shot one using the regular pinhole i haven't shot one yet using the um the anamorphic pinhole in the end but the the idea with this is um uh it it it's eight by ten pinhole onto film and, or onto paper, excuse me. I could put it onto film, but uh, onto paper was the design. So I've shot that, but I've yet to develop it. So that's one of the things. I've been working on making available in my Etsy store and probably not before we release our next episode, but uh, I'm going to guess the beginning of November, I will have a set for sale. Actually, I'll have three different sets of um holga masks and um uh and so what i've been doing in the meantime is actually shooting them as examples because i don't didn't really have examples so i needed to shoot with them so you knew what you were buying and they'll come in um in three different you know kind of kits one of them will just have the main slip mask then I'll have one with two different sizes of slip masks and 
four other um, various um, designs and then one with six other various designs and the one with six other various designs will have one for six, four, five. So if you lost or you never had for your Holga, the six, four, five insert, this will put, will give you that six, four, five ability, but also what I call the Hopan, which is a uh, panoramic size slip mask. And thank you, Ethan, for suggesting that. Cause I, I was making all these and Ethan said, you should make one like a, a, a an X-Pan. So um, it's going to be good. Yeah, it's 24 millimeters by 56 millimeters. So that's the image. Now, in order to get it horizontally, you have to hold your camera, uh, your your Holga sideways. But yeah, it's not a big deal. Really, it's not a big deal. There's hardly, uh, any, there's hardly any other controls on a Holga other than holding right. onto it and pointing it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you do have to, you know, you you, you scale focus, so uh, or zone focus, so um, so that uh, and I actually took that out testing it. Now I haven't developed the film yet, but what I did was I went to a local Viking mead festival that's in the next town over, and um, and I shot people in their costumes, and um, I, I, my favorite part of the Viking mead festival was the Irish band that they had. The, apparently, Irish bands are appropriate at a Viking mead festival. So, um, I, are Irish Vikings? They're, no, they're not. And the reason no. is it's just because most Vikings don't have a band. I mean, right. that's, they, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. It, we, I mean, uh, other than having the sugar cubes or Bjork uh, coming through, <laughs> you don't really get that many Viking bands, at least not in rural Florida. So... Uh, so anyway, they are the the band was actually good and the lead singer was funny as hell. Um, uh, so uh, I, I I enjoyed that a lot. But here's here's my deal: is I I'm not a street photographer and I feel like I have you know in general I don't feel comfortable taking pictures of people um, just that I don't know. I I always feel like they're I, I mean if I take pictures of people I know. That's fine. They know I'm the guy with the camera. Um, but the it, because there were all these people who were dressed up and um, they were, it, it, you know, they had worked on their outfits. I mean, this is this is similar to cosplay, right? I mean, it's just a different cosplay uh, or it's similar to drag. If you're into the drag scene, it's it the the outfit, the costume, the the makeup, the the you know the all of that it, they put money and time and effort into it so if you ask to take their pictures and I always ask um, they are so into showing off their outfits right um, so uh, one of the things that I found with this 24 by 56 millimeter mask um, is that I could use it vertically for a single person. Um, or I could use it horizontally, although I had to step back quite a bit to get multiple, you know, to get enough of that image where I'm not cutting off people. You know, it's not just the middle of people. Right. Um, so it, it I, so that worked out, I think, quite well. And I had a whole lot of fun walking around, asking people to take their pictures and them saying yes, because that is a part of photography that I'm very uncomfortable with. And so I had a great day with that. Um, 
and uh, the mead was Midland. Um, uh, I think I make better mead. So uh, so anyway, that was that was my big uh, that, that's what I've been doing since we last talked about it. Sounds a lot so, of fun. Yeah, I love I love fairs and festivals first, that type of photography, because people are yeah. already ready, ready to be photographed. Yeah, right. Right. Exactly. So uh, so, Ethan, what have you been working on? I hear you've been working on a camera for the Sunny 16ers. Yeah, well, it's a concept. We'll we'll see what goes on with it. I have very limited time. And so, of course, what I did was like I thought I would start a new project that I thought would only take a few days. Um, no, I kind of cleared my schedule and then I was waiting for a lot of these cameras to print um, that I had not put a, my store away message on. And so I had to fill them, but I had, you know, 20 hours of prints before I could do assembly. So I'm kind of sitting there. I'm almost packed and ready. Um, so yeah, they, they had this day into night challenge, um, which can be interpreted in many different ways. And then Nick and I, uh, were talking about building a, like a pinhole camera or some sort of camera with a slit shutter that moves across a panorama over a long period of time. And I don't think this will be a good product. I think it's like a one trick pony camera, right? Where it does one or two things. All right. And you might use it once. And so I think I will. I'm going to try and do it before we leave. I don't know. I have most of it drafted and the program is really simple. And I have the electronics that I can rip out of a 3d printer that is in my parts bin. So, um, I think it's the type of camera that I will make. Maybe I'll make a little laser cut box for it to travel in with some padding. And then I will shoot, I don't know, two pictures with it, 10 pictures, um, and then ship it to somebody, uh, to do the same. I think, the, I think the concept's really interesting. You're you're calling it a one-trick pony, but the basic idea of panoramic cameras that allow a really slow exposure where the lens is sweeping slowly across the film or the shutter slit is sleep, sweeping slowly or the film is slowly trundling by a slit. It doesn't really matter what the mechanism is, but the idea that, that you look at it, one panoramic Slitsky. image and you see a big... Uh, a, change in time from one side to the other it's potentially very interesting and someone could spend a lifetime messing around with it i think what you're saying is this particular camera will will only do part of that part of the many possibilities Um, yes so it relies on a bunch of uh or i have other projects who will that will rely on on the technology developed here and improvements upon it but um one of the things so i i basically designed as much of it as I could to be cut out of birch ply uh, because I can do that on a laser cutter really quick. And so I didn't print like bodies. I just spent extra time figuring out how the birch would interlock. So I only had a few days and then I 3d printed the, I don't know, the, the little brackets and knobs and uh, uh, whatever the, what do you, maybe I would call it a fork that turns the, the roll of film type of deal. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know where I was going with that. Well, so <laughs> so, so the the thing that you're doing is is um, that's that's adding to that. I mean, the structures could be made a lot of different ways. But what's really interesting about your idea that the part I hadn't thought of was you wanted to connect a light meter to a little uh, Arduino brain, yeah, so that you can adjust exposure dynamically throughout throughout this long time period 
Um, and I guess it's basically a matter of speeding up and slowing down to allow the same proportion of light to enter. Um, and what's weird about that is that if it was perfect, then you would get only a very subtle change from night from day to night. In a way, it's almost like a camera that will counteract <laughs> the theme. Of, right. So, of, <laughs> so. But the change and, in lighting and color, there will be subtle changes depending on the film you're using or paper or whatever. Right. Yeah. So um, I'll, I'll describe it real quick is, um, so we know what we're talking about. It's a six by 12 panoramic pinhole with either a like a 90 or 95 millimeter uh, focal length. And it has a single curtain shutter with a slit cut in it, and it's rolled up on one side and passes through, you know, uh, just a guide roller and through a track right in front of the film gate. And then there's a take-up roller who has um, a shaft that goes up through the top of the body with a big gear on it. And then there's a little gear right next to it that drives it, and that's connected to a NEMA step-up motor, which is like, you know, one of my $7 3D printer motors type of deals. Um, and then there's a little motor controller. Um, and then an Arduino that will run the, you know, the program to tell the motor when to move. So, so, also, let, so let me just ask you, is it essentially a curtain shutter, like in a speed graphic only yeah, exactly, an ex exactly. excruciatingly slow version? So what you're making is a sl like a extreme slow graphic. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. Oh, so it's not moving the film. It's moving the shutter. Right. Yeah, I only had a couple ah. of days to build this thing. So, okay. well, and that's the okay. beauty of that is it's it's you know it's hard to make roll film move predictably, but it's right. the curtain. So this is a, a really good solution because you can make the curtain move. Uh, you know, it could have sprockets or whatever is needed. You know, or the spools or whatever. Uh, it's going to be a lot um, easier to control. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I was thinking that the film was going to, you know, like a um, a, a spinner. You know, yeah, you, like a Swiss you know the scan. principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. Uh, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, uh, I think that this old, this is this is interesting. I want to be on the list of people you send this to. Okay. Yeah. Um, you guys can you know, can be the first testers, and it can come back here if it uh, yeah. breaks <laughs> before we send it overseas. The, yeah, the funny yeah. the funny thing is that two days before this whole day and tonight thing came up i was in a local antique store and i s just happened to spot a kodak panoram which is a camera i'd never seen before but it's a, a very old swing lens panoramic camera the kind that they used to take pictures of you know the the entire school high school population all at once or something like that uh, and it's a beautiful thing it's a wooden box with a very strong yeah. curved film plane and the lens itself um swings and at the back of the lens, there's a narrow slit, um, kind of like a little rectangular tube that projects back and comes close to the film so that it's only exposing a narrow slit as the lens swings past the film. Um, and it, it's a very simple, very elegant uh, version of, you know, what we now have, um, the modern versions of these. But this has been, they've been around for 100 years. These are really old cameras. And this particular model... Um, looked like it'd be something easy to build. And it intrigued me as soon as I heard about this day and tonight, I thought, wow, do a super slow version of that. And it's similar to what Ethan's doing only. And now it's a curved film plane and, uh, and you're using a lens. Um, and so 
and because with a lens and a long panorama, you know, it's the curved film plane gets rid of vignetting. It helps with focus issues. You know, it's it makes things a little easier to do from a technical point of view. Easier oh, to photograph, right. more difficult to build. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but simpler, um, yeah. you know, which. Hey, have you thought about modifying yeah. the panorama? Well, I've thought about it, but I don't want to spend the money on it. Um, so I've thought about just I've been thinking instead of building one myself. So there's a bunch of things. The panorama, you have to it's a it's an obsolete film size, um, you know, and, and the mechanism on it appears to be broken. And so, you know, I almost rather start over and build one from scratch because they're not very complicated. Uh, yeah, I, I suppose they aren't. I don't really know sort of how they are geared. I could take a, a guess but well, there might be parts so missing for all i know <laughs> yeah. i look at it doesn't work and i look at it and i don't understand how it ever could work and i i wouldn't be surprised if you know something's missing yeah yeah there are uh i i think i've seen some youtube videos uh of uh panoram working i came across them maybe five or six years ago and really did a lot of a lot of uh romancing and then never bought one um so uh one of the things that's really nice about them is that they have a really nice leather uh um boot that mm-hmm. sits around the camera and they can let's just clear be, this up you mean romanticizing right <laughs> well no <laughs> It's it's the idea of remember the movie Romancing the Stone. I Romancing see. means to look at a lot, to figure out, to uh I'm not talking about I did not send it any Valentine's cards. Um so no, but yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. No foreplay at all, just right to business. Yeah. Well, okay. So I think of uh, I use this term when I teach photography and the idea of romancing the subject which means that you don't just walk up and take a picture and take a picture and take a picture and then move around and take a picture and take it. No, it's look at it first and look at it and look at it and look at it and really analyze it and really look at the background and see where the best angle is before you take the picture. So that's the, uh, that's the part of that term that I'm using is where you really look at it before you, um, before you you in my case buy or before you take a picture or before so you this is an internet era romancing you're talking about swipe left swipe left swipe left swipe left yes that's it exactly <laughs> and none of them would answer my grinder yeah uh, yes I, I i i am a swing lens camera on grinder now you t- talk about what a swing lens camera would be okay never mind I'm it's not nothing to do with the swinger no it's a, it's a whole other thing. <laughs> Yes, yeah, it's not a Kodak. Well, it was a Kodak, the Kodak Swinger, right? Okay, or was it a Polaroid? No, that was Polaroid. That was Polaroid. Nick, do you have a book this week? Nope. No, no books. <laughs> uh, Ethan, you have a book? Anybody have a book? Yes, it's nope. called The Internet 
by Al Gore. I don't read books. Yes. Watch YouTube, look up, man. Look up the internet. Look up the internet. It's on the internet. It's it's the Google machine. It's really cool. Um. Yeah. Let's see. Okay. What about shout outs? What do you guys? Uh, who do you have shout outs to? Well, I'm. Oh. Uh, I wanted right. to. I did want to mention that. Um. That. That person that. Um. Dom Silverthorne sent us a camera. Uh. That was this wonderful wearable camera this guy made for his kid. It's it's a great idea. Everyone should make one in order to study um, camera movements and all that large format stuff. The name is Koichi Hiraiwa, K-O-U-I-C-H-I-H-A-I-R-A-I-W-A on Instagram. I'll, I'll try to get it in the show notes. Yeah, get a link. Get the link because it's a wonderful – it's like a rabbit mask with a black skirt that you put over your head, and then you're looking at a – essentially a ground glass screen behind a lens so you're it's like wearing a camera on your head and walking around uh, it's great oh okay so this is an instagram fiend and it's koichi hiraiwa okay Hiraiwa. Yeah. um and i will put it in uh in the show notes uh so yeah absolutely and it right now is currently the third item on on the list um so, yeah, uh, I will definitely make sure that that is in the show notes. So, um, uh, Ethan, who do you have to shout out? Um, uh, I, I, yeah, there's yeah. a couple I want to do, but I uh, let, let me get back to you on this. <laughs> OK, uh, uh, Ethan's shout outs will be in the show notes. So uh, yes. take a look at that. Um, I want to say uh, to mention a new podcast that's coming along. It's all through a lens and it is Eric. You know him as uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Conspiracy of Cartographers and yes. Vanya. And I don't know what her Instagram is. So um, they do a very entertaining show. They actually have production values. And it's not just rolling music, the same music in between sections. They have some interesting production values. And um, some of you may have heard the first episode on the Sunny 16 feed. If you don't listen to that, uh, uh, search it out. It is all through a lens. And um, they are now available on, um, you know, all your podcatchers. So, yeah, it's uh, great. So we'll do this. So um, you can uh, contact Ethan, Nick, or Graham, and Graham is spelled G-R-A-H-A-M, and uh, at uh, just given at homemadecamera.com, and uh, that will get to us. We also have podcast at homemadecamera.com. Um, I am Freezer of Photons on Flickr and I am Graham Homemade Camera on Instagram. And uh, Nick, where are you? Oh, uh, the same thing with my name. Yeah, Abby on Nick. <laughs> on Instagram, it's Abby Nick at Gmail. Uh, or just no, Abby just Nick. Abby Nick. Yeah. And the uh, uh, Flickr is just my name, Nick Lyle. And then there's the one that goes to our podcast, which is just like yours, only with my name on the front of it. Right, right. And Ethan? Uh, Cameradactyl.com. Okay. And Cameradactyl on Instagram, YouTube, um, MySpace. Uh, 
Bandcamp. Friendster. There we go. Grinder. Um, anyway, uh, uh, let's see. Um, and we want to thank Robbie from Soundtrap Studios for providing the music for our show. Hey, thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Robbie. Yeah, I don't. I never know if I'm finding the right words to to make all of this clear because I had a hard time with all these ideas as well. Yeah, right. It's, it, it's how we originally started arguing over something like this. But I think um, my general attention is probably, you know, uh, in in the 35 millimeter range. I'm maybe not as focused. <laughs> mm-hmm. That uh, could could vary. But, but I, you know, I, th- I think it really like has has something to do with the type of lenses we choose, right? As to how we choose to have our attention right like when i see the world i feel like 35 millimeter is going to be the focal length that that uh you know captures what i'm paying attention to and that's because you're stressing um that field of view as the more important issue and and i I don't have attention to details and i kind of agree with you because i think that that when it comes to composition, field of view is critical because whether something so I when I use a 40 millimeter lens, I really appreciate how normal it feels optically, but it crops the world a little too close. So maybe I am also a little more of a 35 millimeter field of view person in terms of general like landscape type perception. I, I might be exactly in agreement with you when it comes to that. 
but there's this other slightly smaller area where that's the area where you can see a lot of detail and that's a so there's two things in contradiction to each other that you know that the 40 millimeter focal length gives us the right optical flavor and and you know it's but it crops too much and and that's the problem and you know what i that's one reason I like formats that are a little taller, like four by five or six by seven, uh, because they give a more normal feeling field of view with the same focal length equivalence. Just from the crop is just more more comfortable, more stuff fits in it, you know. It it makes me think about like when I go hiking with my girlfriend, um, she's always looking down at the ground, looking at like crazy rocks when we're out in the desert and I have my head like elsewhere right, looking for big ugly rocks to climb. <laughs> she maybe has the, the 105 millimeter attention whereas I have the 28 millimeter attention. Well traditionally in human culture uh, she would be looking for food on the ground botanical food sources and you would be looking for uh, things to throw a rock at I mean, I think she's looking for weapons. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you better write a note. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Um, Yeah. 151. uh, Yeah. We had a pretty, pretty long outage there here. Yes. Crash. (laughs) Loading. Stupefied by Babel. Okay, let's call that out then, and that is 146. Okay, can I go pee? Um, no. Uh, Just give me one second. (laughs) 146. There we go.